Well, good morning, Seven Mile Road. You are missed, you are loved, you are prayed for. In a season where it feels like everything is changing, let me remind you of three things that have not changed. God, His Word, and His love for you and me. God is still God and He is in control. His Word is alive and active, ready for us as we bring to Him our anxieties, our questions, and our needs. And His love is unchanging. His love for us is always and forever. And so with that confidence, let's pray and look at God's word this morning. Father, thank you that your word has not changed. You have not changed and your love for us has not changed. And so I pray with that confidence, we can look at your scriptures this morning for what you have to speak to us. Holy Spirit, help us to come to your word ready to receive your truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. What words come to mind when you hear the word obedience? Think about that for a moment. What words come to mind when you hear the word obedience? Maybe you wrote down unpleasant. Maybe you're thinking unwilling, control, authority, difficult, restrictive. My question is, did anyone think joy? Did the word joy come to mind when you heard the word obedience? The answer is it's probably not, right? And the reason is, is that we have a love-hate relationship with obedience. See, on one hand, we would love for the people who are under our authority to obey. And we'd like them to obey the right way, all the way, in a happy way, without delay, without disgust, and without discussion. In other words, we'd love for those under our authority to obey with joy. But when we're in the position of required obedience, we'd much rather explain why we are the exception to the rule. Now this morning, we're, co we're continuing in our series, Gospel-Fueled Joy, and we're getting into the application section of Paul's letter. Paul has just masterfully walked through the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. He's traced his descent from glory and equality with God to taking the form of a servant in the incarnation. And if that weren't low enough, Christ descended to the depths of death to suffer humiliation on the cross. And then Christ rose in glorious victory and exaltation back to glory so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's because of that, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 30, that we should live lives of joyful obedience. Now this morning, as we look at our text, it's going to divide into three major sections. First, Paul lays out a theology of obedience. He wants us to understand theologically, how does obedience work in the life of a believer? Second, Paul's going to move into some practical application of obedience. This answers the question, what does obedience require? What are the things that we are required to do as we live a life of faithful obedience? And then finally, as we move into the last section, Paul is going to give us two examples of obedience. He's going to give us these case studies of Timothy and Epaphroditus of what obedience actually looked like in the life of two believers. So we're going to see the theology, the application, and the examples of joyful obedience. Let's start together in chapter 2, verse 12. Paul writes this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation 
with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul starts with the word, therefore, which means there is a logical connection between what Christ has done for us and our response. So what he's saying is, in light of who Jesus is, the highly exalted one, whose very name requires our bended knee. And you think about all that he has done for us, living for us, dying for us, raising for us. In light of all of that, our response should be one of grateful, joyful obedience. And then he lays out this theology of obedience and how it actually works. Now, there are two parts to how it works. We have God's activity on one hand and our responsibility on the other. If you're taking notes, write that down. God's activity and our responsibility. See, in terms of Paul's logic, we're working out what God has worked in. God has worked in us his salvation, and now our responsibility is to work it out. Now, his work happens first. It's his life-giving work that makes us come alive to the gospel. So it makes sense for us to start with God's activity. Now, verse 13 finishes off a trio of verses that teach that all of our salvation from beginning to end is from the Lord. Let's remember them together. Philippians 1 and verse 29, Paul writes, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This verse teaches that our belief in God has been granted to us. It's been given to us as a gracious gift. Now remember Philippians 1, verse 6. Paul says, I am sure of this, confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's word promises that the work God begins in us will be completed. God never leaves his work unfinished. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let's put all those truths together. God has given us the faith to believe. He guarantees its effectiveness all the way to completion. And he hasn't left us to figure out how the middle works out. God himself is working down at the level of our wills so that we begin to desire what is good, true, and beautiful. He's working down at the level of your soul so that you begin to love what he loves. Listen to how J. Alec Mateer describes the work of God in us. Let his words encourage you. In every action, there are two aspects to be considered, the will and the deed. And one or the other of these is often our downfall. What he's saying is when it comes to our will and deed, it takes both of those to accomplish an act. And often this is where our downfall happens. Now, either we cannot bring ourselves to choose what we know to be right, or else having chosen it, we fail to do it. Sin has corrupted both the power to choose and the power to accomplish. But God is effectively and ceaselessly at work in you, both to will and to work, to recreate our wills and to impart in us his own capacity for effectual working. Friends, God is committed to restoring what sin has corrupted all the way down at the level of our will 
and deeds. So what this means is as you grow in Christ, you will find that you start to desire the things of God. And incredibly, you have the ability to actually do them. And here's my favorite part of this verse. Why does God do it? Paul says, for his good pleasure. He wants to do it. He loves us. And when you genuinely love someone, don't you want to see them thrive? God loves it. He takes pleasure in. He delights in seeing his children grow into maturity. He loves seeing his work of redemption come to reality in our lives. Parents uh, have a front row seat to seeing their children grow in maturity, and it's incredible. Or think about it this way. Have you ever restored something? Maybe it was an old piece of furniture, a hand-me-down from your grandparents, or maybe this was a, a free pickup on the side of the road, and you took the time to strip off the old varnish and paint and give it a good sanding. You fixed the broken leg and you tightened all the joints and you put a new coat of finish so that the piece came to life again. Or maybe it was a renovated home, a, 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 a renovated room in the house. You pulled up the carpet to reveal beautiful hardwood floors. And after a coat of fresh paint on the walls, new light fixtures, the room took on a new life. And when the project is done, you stand back and you enjoy the newness. You, 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 you look back and say, the work was worth it. Friends, this is a glimpse, a fraction of the infinite pleasure God gets in seeing us restored, in seeing his work of redemption come to life in you. So in our theology of obedience, first we see God's divine and gracious activity. But there's a second part to how obedience works, and it's our responsibility. Remember, Paul says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Believer, there is a real responsibility on you and me to work, to cultivate a life of obedience. God has done the work to make us alive. And so what Paul is saying is live. God has made you alive so live like you are alive. God has worked something in you. Now we are to work it out. Now this is often where people get tripped up and it's the reason why we started first with God's activity. See, we aren't working to achieve something. Salvation is not a goal to be earned or achieved. It's a gift that's already been received. It's a gift that's meant to be unwrapped, experienced, and enjoyed. Think about marriage. If I were to say to a couple, hey, let's work on your marriage. You two need to work at your marriage. I'm not saying get married. I'm not saying earn your marriage. I'm saying you're already married. Now take what you have and cultivate it, grow it, nurture it, so that you get to experience and enjoy all of its beauty. The care of our soul, our spiritual maturity, friends, is our responsibility. Look at me right here. I know there's a camera between us, but look at me. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That's true of you right now. And you have the spirit of the living God working down at the level of your soul, both to will and to work. Don't resist his work in you. Don't get lazy. Don't grow 
complacent. You really can walk in obedience. You really can say no to sin. You really can pick up your Bible this week and read it. You really can say no to lying. You really can walk in sexual purity. You really can be kind and patient with the person who gets on your nerves. All of it. You really can cultivate a life of obedience. So here we are in this verse. We see both side by side God's divine sovereign activity in our lives and our responsibility. They're not pitted against one another. Paul affirms both of them as true. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say God has done his part to save you. Now it's up to you to finish the job. Good luck with all that. Nope, he doesn't say that. Nor does he say, listen, God will do it all. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy the sanctification ride. The Bible will have none of that. There is a blend of both, resting in the reality that God is at work from beginning to the end. And there's an activity of cultivation that says, I am determined to grow in Christ. It's not either or, it's both and. There is a balance between our responsibility to strive for obedience and on the other hand, what is guaranteed to be done in us. Friends, this should produce an incredible incentive for us as we live. As we strive to live a life of obedience, you can rest and know that God is ceaselessly working in you and me to ensure that we will faithfully endure. So we can rest confidently in God's work in us. And at the same time, we can actively pursue a life of obedience. This should keep us from two major pitfalls. On the one hand, this prideful boasting when we succeed. And on the other hand, a despairing defeat when we fail. Because in our victory, it's God's gracious work in us that's giving us success. And in our defeat, it's the gracious work of God that picks us up to go at it again. Now, with this theology of obedience laid out, Paul moves on to the application of obedience. Look with me at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. In these verses, Paul moves from theology to application. Now, anytime we get a list, we have to remember, this is not an exhaustive list of every area of required obedience in the life of a believer. That said, it's certainly enough for us to work on this week. And he's gonna give us a few areas to consider. First, he reminds us of what faithful contentment is. Paul says, we should do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, that doesn't mean that we, that, that we have to like or enjoy times of suffering and trial. It doesn't mean you can't have a bad day. But what it does mean is that we live our life without this constant refrain of whining and complaining, self-pity and entitlement. See, that word grumbling, it, it's talking about this relentless complaining, a selfish impatience. A, a, an unbalanced criticism that always leaves people put down, crushed, and tired. Rather, the contented life is one marked by gratitude and praise. 
The life of contentment can always find something to praise and thank God for. A life of contentment is ultimately a life of faith, a faith that says, God is working it all for my good and his glory. Even if I can't understand how he's working it for my good and his glory, I can always have faith to say, he is working it out for my good and my glory. That frees us up to build others up, to do our very best, and then trust God for the outcomes. Paul even says in verse 18 that we should be glad and rejoice. Here's a very simple question for you to think about. On the whole, if you were to look at all of your life, is your life marked by gladness and joy? It's an honest question, but it's an important question. Are those words people would use to describe you? When, when, when someone says, tell me about so-and-so, would they say they are a glad person? They are a joyful person? Or are you generally more gloomy and complaining? My brothers and sisters in Christ, this should not be. Our lives should be marked by a faithful contentment. Number two, Paul says there should be a striving holiness. Paul used the words blameless, innocent, and without blemish. These words refer to our character, and it's comprehensive. These words cover both in what people see from the outside as they look at our lives, and also what we see on the inside in our thoughts and desires. This presupposes that we know God's design and his loving boundaries as revealed in scripture. See, if you're going to be blameless, innocent, without blemish, you have to know his design and loving boundaries, otherwise known as God's law and his rules. So instead of claiming ignorance, like I didn't know what God's word teaches, we begin to search the scriptures with the question, Lord, how should I live my life? I want to be blameless in your sight. I want to be innocent and without blemish. And so I want to strive for holiness. It's asking God to say, Lord, what does your word teach that I might live it out by faith? And when we know the right thing to do, we should strive to do it. James in chapter four, verse 17 writes this. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. When we study God's word and we learn what God's law teaches, what his design is, what his uh, rules are for human thriving and flourishing, when we know that truth, we can't plead ignorance. And to know what the right thing to do is and not do it is sin. We are to strive to know the right thing and then to do it. And if that feels difficult, don't forget God is actively at work at the level of your will and in the act of your doing to work out what's been worked into you. You have God working in you at the level of your soul so that you learn to love what he loves and desire what he desires. The beauty of Christian ethics is that we are called to be who we are. In Christ, we become a beloved and adopted children of God. Now, what Paul is saying is, Live like it. That's who you are, so live like it. Number three, Paul says there should be a distinctive brightness. A distinctive brightness. Paul says that when we live like this, we will stand out in a distinctive way in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation where we shine like stars. I know in in the middle of a metropolitan area like Boston, it can be hard to see the stars at night. But if you go out to more remote 
areas with less light interference where it's really dark, the stars shine in breathtaking brilliance. And what Paul's saying is when we hold fast to God's word, when we're committed to obedience, our lives become lights of the gospel and all of the darkness around us, we will shine like stars. Paul's saying when we live in a distinctive way with that kind of brightness, we are giving testimony and witness to the glory of Christ and the goodness of God when we live a life of faithful obedience. So here's another question. Is your life distinctive enough to shine like a star in the midst of darkness? Or are your values, your spending habits, your choices and decisions so similar to the pattern of this world that there simply is no distinction. Remember the words of Jesus himself in John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we have to ask, do we just love Jesus in theory? Is it one of those things that it's easy to say, I love Jesus? Do we love Jesus in theory and deny it in practice? See, it's one thing to say you love Jesus, but Jesus said himself, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now this list is short, but it is enough to chew on this week. And did you notice that this section on application doesn't get down into the detailed specifics? That's because biblical application is, ever, is hardly ever specific and detailed. Rather, the Bible by way of application gives us principles. We are taught principles to be applied, and the details, the specifics come as we think on and chew on those principles, as we develop plans and action steps in our life. So where do you, where do I need to repent before the Lord? What areas of faithful contentment and a striving holiness and a distinctive brightness do we need to commit to obedience this week? So Paul's laid out a theology. He's given us application, and now he gives us two case studies. Like a good teacher, he gives us some examples in the lives of real people. Look at verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me with the gospel. First, Paul mentions that Timothy was a man who was genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. Instead of a life of selfishness and complaining, looking at what he's not getting, what is Timothy doing? He's looking to serve others. And he was faithful over time so that he had a proven worth. He was faithful over a lifetime, and it was someone that Paul could rely on. And then Paul goes on in verse 25, and he says, I had thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Here we see Epaphroditus is described as a co-laborer with Paul. Listen to some of the words that describe him. 
fellow worker, a soldier, a messenger, a minister. Paul says he even risked his life for the work of Christ. This was a man who had taken the love of Jesus and it had compelled him. He, he embodied the idea that our life has been bought with the precious blood of Christ and is therefore not ours anymore. He was committed and determined to see the gospel go forward. So when Paul needed a worker, Epaphroditus was there. When Paul needed a soldier, Epaphroditus was there. When he needed a messenger to send a letter, Epaphroditus was there. When he needed a minister, a servant, Epaphroditus was there. He said, whatever you need, count me in. Now, much more could be said as we mind through a careful study of these two individuals. My hope is that in our discussions and in our personal study that we would, that we would spend time looking at these lives. But here's the big point to take away in looking at their lives. God often uses godly brothers and sisters in Christ in our lives to serve as models and examples of what it means to live a life of faithful obedience. We can't help but learn from others and model behavior. It's hardwired into our DNA. So the question is less, if you will learn from others and if you will follow others, but more, what will you learn from others and from whom will you learn it? If you see a brother or sister in Christ who models an aspect of the Christian life well, you are encouraged to ask him or her about it. See what you can learn from them. See if they would come alongside you as you strive to cultivate that aspect into your life. Friends, this is at the very heart of discipleship. We grow in Christ and then we help others grow. One of my prayers as we started Seven Mile Road is that we would be a family where everyday discipleship is normal and widespread. And in a time of discouragement and difficulty, what if we encourage one another this week? What if we sent an email, a text, a letter, a phone call to someone in the church? If you need their contact info, let me know. I'll get it to you. And just let them know, hey, I have seen Christ in you. I have seen you model well this aspect of the Christian life. Your life has modeled for me and it's encouraged me as I seek to grow in joy-filled obedience. Wouldn't that be an encouragement in the life of the church this week? Friends, as we close, we really can do this. We really can live lives of faithful obedience to the Lord. Remember this, our life of obedience has already been accomplished in Christ. Remember what Paul said in chapter 2, verse 8, that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, Jesus was obedient all the way to the cross. He lived perfectly for us. He died sacrificially for us, and he rose victoriously for us. This is our incentive. This is our motivation to live a life of humble, joy-filled obedience. So when we fail and we will inevitably fall, let's get up because his grace is sufficient for you and me. And when we succeed, because we really can, let's praise the Lord. He is working in you, in your souls, to produce the desire to live in obedience. And friends, let's shine like stars as we live for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. 
that you have accomplished for us all that we need to live a life of obedience. And you haven't just left us alone to figure it out on our own, but you are actively working in us at the level of our will and deeds in order to live a life of obedience. What you require, you provide. And we thank you for that. Help us as we live our lives right now to have a faithful contentment, a striving towards holiness and a distinctive brightness so that we can shine as stars in the midst of a dark world. We love you and trust you for this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.